0: Welcome back to the Sports and Show podcast with Adiyemi Sosina. And yes, this is episode 22. I can't believe it, but yes, this is episode 22. Thank you all for listening, subscribing, telling a friend, and always refreshing that Apple podcast, waiting to hear a new episode. And this week we have a treat for you. We have Julie DeCaro, who is the update anchor and the host of Julie and Maggie's show on 670 and Score Radio. She's also a wonderful sports journalist, and I'm glad that she got a chance to sit down with me and share her story on how she became a lawyer, and she stopped being a lawyer and followed her true passion on being a sports journalist. She also touches on the difficulties that it can be in this industry being a woman in sports, and she does give good advice to all the women out there who are striving to become wonderful sports journalists. So I hope you all enjoy this interview. Here it is. Thank you, Julie, for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's it's really an honor to finally get to meet you and talk oh, to you. Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, I'm serious. Like, uh, I feel like people and like, your colleagues or people in your position, um, they might be like too proud proudful or have too much pride to say, like, oh, yeah, you're like, truly an inspiration and they're glad to meet you. But like really, it's awesome. Gosh, that- thank you. That's <laughs> really nice of you to say. It's awesome to be here and talk to you. First of all. I know you're from Rockton, or you went to high school in Rockton. Rockton, yeah. I stayed in Rockford. I, I didn't like it.
1: It's not the same. It's <laughs> not the same, but I totally feel that. Yeah, I get it. How was that for you? Um, you know, so my family, both my mom and my dad are from Chicago. Um, my dad's from the west side. My mom's from, like, Skokie. Chicago was always a huge part of my life. Um, we were always back here for, you know, family stuff, and, and we came down here quite a bit. But um, it really was, I grew up in Roscoe, which is the next town over from Rockton, and um, it really was a pretty idyllic childhood. I mean, we had, you know, a golf course and everyone belonged to the golf course and we had a pool and that's where we spent our summers. And literally we would like, you know, take the fishing pole and walk two miles to the creek and like catch crayfish and mm-hmm. fish and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so it was a pretty Huckleberry Finn kind of childhood. And and, and the high school that I went to, Rockton, Hananiga, was a terrific Terrific high school to go to, had some wonderful teachers, so um, yeah, it was was a pretty great place to grow up, I have to say. At the time, I didn't think so. I thought it was super boring, um, because it wasn't Chicago, but it was, um, looking back on it, it, it's a really great place to raise kids, and I was lucky enough to get to grow up there.
0: Well, we all know you're in sports. What sports did you play growing up?
1: I started out playing baseball. Um, eventually got moved to softball, didn't want to do that. Um, which is like a huge pet peeve of mine when they take like the best girls on the baseball team and move them into softball, like (laughs) let those girls play baseball and let's see what we come up with. Um, I was a gymnast from a very young age um until I was you know 16 17 years old and injury knocked me out of that sport and then I went into diving which is sort of like what most gymnasts do (laughs) after gymnastics you go into diving um I played volleyball I played soccer for many many years my dad was a terrific soccer coach and started a club up in our area travel team and my brother um played you know was really really terrific both my brothers were really good um so we you know there are four kids in my family and we just sort of spent our days going from one person's sport to another on the weekends um i sort i only have two kids who play sports and i don't know i have trouble getting them where they need to go so i don't know how my mom did it with four kids but um tons and tons of sports in my family growing up
0: who did you look up to who'd you love watching for, in sports
1: uh, gymnasts obviously nadia Comaneci. um greg luganis as a diver. Nadia Comaneach was like a, a huge star when I was a very little kid. And so she was like a huge inspiration. Um, definitely women in broadcasting, Andrea Kramer, Mary Carillo, Leslie Visser, who were really the very few women that you saw um, doing sports back then. Um, and then, you know, baseball play-by-play announcers. That's what I wanted to do. So, You know, obviously guys like Steve Stone and, and, you know, people doing national baseball broadcasts. I was a little kid. That was what I wanted to do.
0: Did you go, you went to college. Did you go there specifically for that reason?
1: I went to college thinking I wanted to be a political science major (laughs) because I loved politics. I took one, one poli sci class and was like, I hate this. (laughs) So um, I moved into journalism. Everyone had always told me I should be writing, you know. Um, from the time I was a kid, so I went into journalism and French, um, and the, the, that winded up wound up being my major: journalism and French. Um, but no, but I, you know, while I was at IU, I got the chance to do a ton of stuff with sports there, um, with the, especially with the football team, um, sometimes with the basketball team, with the soccer teams, which are always ranked near the top. Um, so it was a great time to sort of see what went on in sports behind the scenes.
0: You went to law school uh, at DePaul. I did after. Indiana, why did you go to law school?
1: Uh, Okay, so here's why. Um, I wanted to be in sports broadcasting, but didn't really see many women doing that, especially in radio. Like, there were no women in radio. There were some women on TV. And so I didn't really know what to do. And honest to God, I loved law and order. And I was like, I'll just go be a lawyer. (laughs) Um, and, And it was great. I mean, I loved the law. I loved law school. I loved practicing as an attorney. I went on to be a public defender, um, which is still the best job I've ever had in my life. I love that job. Uh, And then, you know, later went on to represent domestic violence victims. I worked in family law. But I mean, that was pretty much why, because there were what I wanted to do. They always say, you know, representation matters. And it really does, because there was no one for me to look up to and say, I want to do what she's doing. You know, now there's Amy Lawrence out there. There's CJ Silas. there's, There's all kinds of women that have their own shows on the radio. But back then, there really weren't.
0: How was law school? Um, How was it being a public defender? And uh, walk me through that, your day-to-day life.
1: Yeah, law school was wonderful. Um, It's one of those rare opportunities where you're sort of ensconced in academia. And, you know, especially your first year, because it's so overwhelming, you can't really have a job. Or at least DePaul back then said, you know, if you're a full-time first-year student, you're not supposed to have a job. So it was one of those sort of magical times where you went to school during the day, and you went out every night, and we were all young and single and living in the city, and it was a really great time. When I got into my second and my third year, I got some really great opportunities. I got to go overseas and work for the United Nations Center for Human Rights in Switzerland. Um, Got to do a ton of, um, you know, I worked at at the Federal Defender's Office, which is the federal version of the public defender. I um, I worked at domestic violence clinics. I got to you know a lot of really hands-on experience. So and I met my husband there. So it was a really really great time. Being a public defender um, is I think one of the most rewarding and most understood jobs that there are. Um, a lot of the time, the public defender is the best attorney in the courtroom because you're there so much and you know the judge, you know the prosecutors, you know you know what what the value of a case is. If it's a probation case, it's a case where the judge is going to give prison time. Um, and you really have to run the courtroom because you have the majority of the clients in that courtroom. So it's one of those things that they sort of throw you in feet first. So my first day on the job, I did a jury trial against a guy who'd been an attorney for like thirty years. Um, but it was a it was a really terrific time. I learned a ton, and it sort of shaped my view of uh, a lot of issues regarding race and gender, um, and things that, that are very relevant in sports today. So I think it was a really important time.
0: You're like the most liveliest person I've ever met. You are you speak well. How did that translate into law? And I know lawyers are sometimes very serious. They work long hours. Did yeah. you ever get to show your personality in the work that you did?
1: Especially when you're starting off in misdemeanor court. So many of the cases you have are funny. I mean, you know, like no, nothing really bad happened. Nobody really got hurt. You know, so... You have like a client who there's video of them stuffing clothes into their pockets and they're still insisting they didn't do it and they want a jury trial you know and so i mean it's like what can you do um there's lots of efforts yeah i mean i think that the thing that juries respond to more than anything is you being yourself um, I used to get in trouble with the court reporters for talking too fast all the time. That was like a, that was like a big thing. But um, there's, there's high comedy in courtrooms. I mean, night court is not that far off from some of the things that happened. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of opportunities for humor and laughter and, you know, things like that, even though it seems like I must be very serious all the time. It's really not. You know, I mean, there, there are a lot of times where, you know, I had one client who just kept taking TVs and he was obviously there was something he, he didn't try to steal them he would just take them and walk out and you know the guy at Best Buy was like I, I don't want him to go to jail I mean clearly there's not something there's something not right with him yeah. but he just keeps taking our TVs you know and I mean there's lots of cases like that that are I mean kind of funny and and so um yeah there's tons of opportunity for humor and things like that
0: when do you find the time to write? Uh, write for like sports or, or just write when you were in law school. There's a lot of reading, I know.
1: Yeah, I didn't write about sports a ton until after I was practicing in a private firm. Okay. Um, and sometimes I was writing. I had a blog by then. I was writing about Cubs, and I was doing that sometimes when I probably should have been working. Like my boss would walk in, and I'd be like <laughs> in the middle of a blog post, and I'd be like, "Hi," you know. So, um, so yeah, I mean, one of those things is that you know when I was in the early days of having my blog. <laughs> I never took a day off. I never had a sick day because it was the thing I wanted to do. So I was excited to do it every single day. And that that was really the key. You know, they always say if you do something you love, you never feel like you're working. And that's exactly how it was. So I would find time. I mean, if I had to do it, you know, on the train with my laptop and then publish when I got home because, you know, back then Wi-Fi wasn't a thing, like, I would do that.
0: Can you take me through that day that you, like quit being a lawyer yes it's so funny because when i look at your twitter handle it's like recovering lawyer and i'm like oh my god the stories you must have yeah so okay so
1: i had i had moved to um a, a family law firm that was fairly high profile we represented athletes we represented some people in hollywood and it was just the biggest, the most bullshit, like, ever. I mean, it's, like, rich people fighting over money and, like, being assholes because they're fighting over their kids. And it was just – and so one day – and my my boss was really super, like, anxiety-driven. And she would, like – her anxiety would spread to everyone else, you know. And, and one day we have this conversation about – um details and being detail-oriented and everything. And I was just, I was so aggravated because I had so many cases. The clients were all so demanding and they were all assholes anyway. And I was just like, I don't do this anymore. And I just like, I was like, I quit and I just walked out. Um, So that was quitting big law. But I had, I did have my own firm for a couple of years after that where I was doing sort of a hybrid thing of sort of working on my sports career on the side while I was still being a lawyer. Um, I got a call from Todd Manley at WGN and he said, we're going to start a sports radio talk station and we want you to be part of it. And that was the minute that I was like, okay, you know what? I think I'm done with everything else, including like running blog networks. And I'm just going to go. So, I mean, it was a great opportunity. And then nine months later, the station was gone. So that was tough. That was sort of a a really early... um, introduction into like how fickle this business can be but i i wouldn't change it i'm so glad i did it
0: people gained their popularity how did you know when you were like okay i got enough readers and blog and blog followers i can really do this thing um when did you know that as a writer
1: i don't i don't feel like i still know that like i, I mean i look at other people who are sort of like where i want to be um, so I look at, like, Lindy West. I look at Roxane Gay. I look at like people like Mike Freeman and, and um, you know, Wright Thompson and, like, you know, all those kinds of people. And I look at, like, it's not even so much about your following. I think it's about making the impact you want to make. And, and like, I still hear people talk about Wright Thompson's Tiger Woods piece, like, almost daily. Someone brings it up for some reason. And I think, like, that's the kind of impact I want to have. You know, I want to write things that last and that matter and that people care about and go back to. Um, I remember when Frank Dufford died, I went back and, like, was reading tons of his Sports Illustrated stuff and just remembering what a great writer he was. And so I, I don't know that you ever feel like, okay, here I am. I've got it all now. I can, you know... So it, it's funny because sometimes people will say to me, oh, I can't believe you responded to my email. And I'm just like, what? Why would I not respond to your email? And, you know, the thing is, like, Jamal Hill, who I adore, she is, like, the person who, like, people walk up to her on the street and she'll be like, oh, yeah, I'll just give you my phone number. You know I mean? She's amazing and she's a billion times more well-known than I am. So, like, if she can do, I mean, I if she is that casual with with people every day. There's no reason for any of the rest of us who aren't even near her level to be, you know, like off put by people talking to you and stuff like that.
0: Time for a quick break. Just want to let you all know that I continue to appreciate all the love and support that you continue to show to this podcast since episode 1 to now 22. We continue to appreciate all the love and we just want to encourage you all to just continue to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts so we can continue to make this podcast a great listening experience for you guys. So I hope you all are enjoying this interview. Now back to the interview with Julie DeCaro. You got a lot of backlash for your uh, article in the Huffington Post mm-hmm. a while ago. What led you to write that letter and uh, what did you want people to really get from that letter? Because... When you write things, people can misconstrue it through through different chains of command, through different mouths. But what did you want people to really know?
1: So at the time um, was the sort of the debate about James Winston and the sexual assault allegations against him. And one of the things I kept seeing was all these guys saying stuff like, you know, well, she was texting him afterwards. So that means nothing happened, you know, and. And I was just thinking, I don't know, unless you've been through a rape, that you really can understand sort of how long it takes you to wrap your mind around it, how you don't really know how to behave. So I wanted to say stuff to people like, look, like just because she's not behaving the way you think a rape victim should behave doesn't mean that it never happened. I mean, I I went out the next night, saw my rapist at a party and like was like chatting him up and laughing and joking around. Um, Because at that time, I still hadn't really understood what had happened to me. Um, And I think a lot of women go through that. In fact, I know a lot of women go through that because I've talked with a lot of women about it. So I was just trying to put out there that unless you – it takes people who work with rape victims years of training to sort of understand the dynamics behind it and, like – Bubba, Florida State fan on Twitter, like you have no idea what you're talking about. So like, don't put it out there. And and that's what I was sort of getting at with that.
0: You talk about Bubba on Twitter. Um, <laughs> Bubba could be kind of mean sometimes. Hate that guy, um, yeah, Bubba. My teacher Ed Sherman at DePaul. Uh, uh, one day, the lesson was to watch uh, what women go through in sports. We watched a documentary of like the first women who were going into football yeah. locker rooms, and then he showed us your mean tweets video mm-hmm. and. I I didn't even know what to do. Like all the guys in the classroom were just in awe because you might see women say, "Oh, we go through this, we go through that," but like we're we like, all right, what well, doesn't really happen? You guys are just making this up. But that video says it all. Um, yeah, it. How was I wasn't making that video.
1: Um, you know, I think Sarah and I by that time had seen that stuff so much that we were sort of numb to it. Um, it was different to hear guys say it to your face. Um, instead of reading it. And, and one of the things that was so funny was those weren't even by far the worst tweets we had. We had to sort of take the intermediate tweets because we didn't want YouTube to pull the video saying it was obscene. So we had to, we had to throw out the worst of the worst. And those are sort of the middle, um, ones. Um, you know, the guys that made it were terrific and amazing. And one of the best things I ever did in my life was respond to this random email from them saying, sure, I'll be in your movie. Um, It was, I mean, it wasn't so much making it. I mean, that was one day. I think I was there for like six hours. I think Sarah's took much less time than mine. Um, And, you know, it was like afterwards we all ate pizza and, you know, it was fine. Drank beer and it was fine. Um, But the, when it came out, I don't think any of us were prepared for the response. So it was, you know, I, I took a nap that day. I was homesick from work and I got, I woke up and I had like 700 Twitter notifications on my phone. And that thing spread like wildfire. Sarah and I were running from, like, an interview for Outside the Lines. And, you know, we were going to do one for NPR. But then in the cab, we're, like, on FaceTime with somebody because they were, like, begging for our time for five minutes. So it was a real whirlwind. And we knew that there would be a backlash against it. There are all the guys who come out and say, like, oh, you're making yourself a victim. Or you're you're trying to portray yourself as a victim to get a bigger audience. You know, stuff like that. Um, We knew that was going to come. Um, But I don't think we expected the scale for any of it. So it was pretty amazing.
0: What's the worst that things that people
1: don't, like men don't
0: know that you get get told every day?
1: There's horrible things that people say to you. Like women get um, harassed in a very different way from men. So it's always very gendered. It's always involves sexual violence. You know, it's. So when guys get like, you're stupid, I can't believe you got your job, if you were here I'd punch you in the face. Whereas women are like, I you know, get stuff like, I want to kill you and rape your dead body. Um, so, I mean, there's that. And and I don't think, and, okay, I said two things. So one is always people telling us, like, why do you even respond to this? Just ignore it. Which I think is unfair, because I think when you're asking someone to re- to ignore it, you're asking them just to sit there and take it day after day after day. And I don't think that's very healthy for anyone's psyche and mental health and mental well-being. The other thing, though, is that I don't think guys realize how much of it we do ignore. So, I mean, I probably ignore 95% of it. Um, But every once in a while, there's someone who gets under my skin for some reason or I had a bad day or or they say something really outrageous. And I think it's fine to put those people people on blast. I think it's healthy for women to do that. Um, Especially because I think women of a certain generation I'm definitely my mom's generation my generation somewhat you were always sort of taught just to be silent and quiet and just not make a fuss and don't make a big deal out of things and don't be a drama queen and and I think that's really unhealthy when you're in in an industry where there's harassment like this all the time so I encourage women to, to fight back and clap back and put people on blast and expose them for the idiots they are if that's what makes them feel better because, you know, one of my friends said for a piece that I wrote, she's like, I spend so much of my time dealing with these assholes and not saying anything. And then the one day that I want to let off steam by telling them off, 50 guys descend on me and tell me to ignore them. And I know they mean well, but I don't know that they necessarily understand the dynamic of really what's going on. One of the things I, I think that if you, when I, when I speak to young women, I always say, expect it and have like your safety plan. Like I used to tell my victims when I was working with domestic violence victims, you know, you have your safety plan. This is where I have my suitcase. This is where whose house I'm going to go to. These are the people I'm going to call to help me. When they finally decide they're going to leave, because there's all kinds of reasons that women don't leave. Um, but I, I think that if you expect it, if you know it's coming, and you're like, "This is my support system. This is what I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to, you know, shut my, I'm going to lock down my account, or I'm going to report all these guys, or my friends are going to take over my account for a couple of days and give me a chance to decompress," then I think it's much easier. I think a lot of it that, like, Sarah and I and Jamel and Michelle Beadle and all kinds of you, Jessica Luther, all these women in this industry that have been through it, is because it you never knew when it was coming. And it just sort of came out of nowhere and overwhelmed you. If you're sort of always kind of on your guard, which is kind of a shitty way to live, but I think it's realistic, and you know it's out there and you know it could come at any time, at least you're somewhat prepared for when it does happen, mentally and emotionally, which I think is the most important thing.
0: Currently, the climate has been... Uh, it's been crazy the last few weeks that we've been coming out and hearing all these women who've been sexually yeah. harassed at work. Um, does that still happen a lot in sports? I know it. Ha- I, I kind of can feel like it has to. Yeah. And what 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 are the avenues for women to go to if that does happen in the sports situation?
1: I've heard some really terrible stories from women um, that have not come forward. I think everyone sort of knows who the guys are in the industry to steer clear of. Like we've we've all heard the same stories and. We've sort of... I think women have sort of begun kind of grouping together behind the scenes. So, like, secret Facebook groups and, you know, Twitter private chats and stuff like that sort of um, supporting each other in these industries. Um, I don't know. I mean, the problem still is that if you report these guys, you risk being called difficult and people always say, you know, you won't work in the industry again if you do this. I don't know if that's the case. Um, You know, I've never been in that position in sports media, Um, I've had some, you know, I think we've all dealt with like creepy guys who constantly make like, you know, sexual comments and stuff like that. But the kind of stuff that we're talking about, with like Harvey Weinstein, um, you know, physically touching people and, and, you know, stuff like that, I think in sports industry, I haven't had to deal with that. And I've been lucky with the guys that I've worked with. Um, So I I don't know. I mean, I I have tons of respect for the women who come forward. Obviously, the first thing you're supposed to do is go to HR. But what do you do if HR is a guy who totally doesn't understand what you're saying, which I think Mm -hmm. is a situation a lot of women find themselves in. So it's I I feel like we're sort of moving through the industries, you know, right now. And I feel like eventually it's going to come around to sports media and people are going to start talking out. But I don't know when that will be.
0: What do you hope to be for um, as like a role model for young women? What do you wish... What do you want to tell them?
1: Well, I want to just be there so that they can see that it's possible. Um, I want young women to see, like right now, I'm behind you on the TV, Michelle Beadle's on, you know, and I want young women to see that and know that this is something they can do, Um, because I didn't have that in my generation. Um, But what I really want to tell women is, I think that uh, a lot of us got messages when we were younger that one of the ways to be feminine is to be small and not outspoken to be quiet and to not cause waves and don't be smarter than the boys and don't be bossy don't be pushy um and i think we do women a real disservice especially in industries that are dominated by men because you have to learn to speak loudly you have to learn to ask for what you want um and and that's sort of what i want young women to know these days and that's what i try to tell them when i speak on campuses get used to using your voice get used to it making people mad If you really want to change anything in this world, that's what you have to do, even though it's uncomfortable for a lot of us who were raised by, you know, my my mom was a baby boomer and and that was always the, you know, don't be smarter than the boys. They don't like girls who are smarter than them. Um, And I've gotten to the point in my life where I'm like, fuck that. Like if I'm the smartest person in the room, then you're going to know because um, I have a lot to say and I want more women to be like that I know Madeline Albright used to encourage the girls in her class at I think Georgetown to interrupt because men interrupt all the time but women generally don't because they don't want to be seen as like being pushy um, and I, I really want that kind of stuff to go away
0: is that like when whenever you're giving like updates you get those like a couple minutes is that what you try to do just just be so upbeat and lively because I feel it you know when you talk I feel like I mean it might be a boring sports day, but when you get on the air and you're on for those couple minutes to update it's like um, different. it's a different vibe.
1: I think I just try to bring energy to it because yeah. I still get really excited about sports <laughs> <laughs> and I you know when I get to talk about it on the radio and that's really cool um I, basically when I do an update, I'm trying to get as much information to people in a short amount of time as I can because you're so limited in the amount of time you have um, and there's so much going on. So I, I feel like that's probably what comes through is my sense of panic of, like, trying to get it all out there. But I also, you know, grew up listening to sports talk radio where guys would do really funny things during sports updates, too. And so I want there to be humor in it, too. So, like, I, I make cracks about, you know, people and, you know, Kyrie Irving's Flat Earth stuff. And, like, I just, <laughs> I do, I do stuff like that during updates just because I think it's, it's you know, 90 seconds of creative space that I have on the number one sports station in Chicago that many people would love to have that. So I feel like I better do my best with it.
0: So when's there been a time where there's been like, you've had like a role model come up to you, like contact you and you're just like,
1: what? Yeah. So (laughs) yeah. Andrea Kramer invited me to come to Boston to speak. Um, and invited me to a private dinner beforehand with like Brian Billick and Kevin Merida from The Undefeated Mm -hmm. and a couple other people. And I'm just sort of sitting there, like, we're on the waterfront in Boston eating this, like, amazing swordfish. And I'm, like, looking around this table and I'm like, how did I get here? Like, I have no idea. Um, So Andrea has become someone who's been a real mentor to me and someone that I can sort of lean on for advice and, you know, a shoulder to cry on. And, And I'm always... I remember watching her when I was much younger and I just sort of am like, how did this ever happen where, like, she became my you know like my role model in this industry so I'm really really grateful for her um and then there's other people who probably aren't as famous like Professor Lou Moore at Grand Valley State University who's um a terrific terrific voice on issues of race and gender and all kinds of things and um you know he's amazing and just the fact that I can email Kevin Merida at the end of Feed if I want to you know I mean like those kinds of people blow me away on a pretty regular basis um Like, you know, Howard Bryant from ESPN Magazine, um, Bomani Jones, um, Dave Zirin at The Nation. Just the fact that, like, those people are the people I count among my friends is pretty... To me, I'm still sort of like, I can't believe I could take out these people.
0: Yeah, Yeah. it's a real, it's so real. I know. Um, What do you want people to know who don't know you, but they're like, oh my God, Julie is so cool. What do you want them to know about you that they probably don't know? And... What advice would you give any young journalist who's trying to make it in this business as a woman and as a male? Because even though it's ever changing, there's still opportunities.
1: What I want people to, uh, first of all, I'm so not cool. Like, I mean, (laughs) at any given time, I would rather be in my pajamas watching like Law and Order than doing probably just about anything else. You know, when you hear people on the radio or see them on TV, they make this look easy. And it's so not easy, even doing updates, even people who are like, you know, oh my God, I can't believe you can't get through an update without screwing up. Like this is hard. I know it sounds easy, but it is not. Um, and so I think, you know, when you hear, I think, and I was one of these people who, too, at one point who would like criticize broadcasters because of course, like you want to have that job and you feel like you could do it better and you're an idiot. And I can't believe you got this job and I would do that job so much better than you. It's hard than a thing. I mean, we I think we all think that until you get in the industry and then you're just like, wow, this is a lot. This is hard. Read a lot of things, not just sports. I think one of the issues that we have um, in this industry is that we have a lot of people who know about sports and don't know about much of anything else. So when you see someone like Albert Breer, who's a great football writer, come out and say things like, "You know, I don't understand what Colin Kaepernick's so upset about," like, "Well, you're you you do not have a very broad base of knowledge," then you know. So I mean, read about law, read about politics, read about race and gender, read about you know sexuality, read, have a broad base. Of what you're coming from. Because sports are inherently political. They've always been political. There's always been issues of integration. Issues of violence against women. Issues of war. Wrapped up in you know, police brutality. Wrapped up in sports. And you sh- if you're going to write about sports. You're going to have to cover those things. And if you don't know what you're talking about. You're doing a real disservice to your readers. So there's that. I think educate yourself as broadly as possible. And the other thing is. Ask for what you want. If you want to host your own show, tell your boss that's what you want to do. Um, Don't expect in this industry people to hand you things. You got to go get them. And that's doubly true for women. So when someone says, you know, what do you want to do here? Don't just say, oh, I don't know, whatever job you have for me, I'd just be happy to be here. Say no. I want to do updates and eventually I want to move into hosting my own show. I think a lot of us in journalism are people who tend to read a lot and write which is more of a solitary thing and i think maybe just are somewhat gentler people by nature you know we're not like corporate raiders out there like dismantling companies but you've got to get used to speaking up to people in power and telling them what you want and that's i think the the best thing that you can learn early on in your career
0: Thanks once again for tuning into the sports and show podcast with myself, Adiemi Ami And thanks to Julia DeCaro. I really appreciate her time. And I'm glad that she was able to sit down and, and talk about the different things that she's gone through in her life, being a lawyer and now a sports journalist and now a radio host on 670 the score. I hope she was an influence to anyone who's listening to this podcast who aspires to be a sports radio host. So once again, guys, continue to subscribe rate and review us on apple Podcasts. It only take a minute we really appreciate all the love and help that you continue to show this podcast and don't forget we'll have a new show coming to you on friday be sure to be refreshing that apple podcast because it's gonna come your way when you don't expect it so guys have a great week be smart don't do anything stupid this jet life, don't scrub, you blot that. Flow rugs in the porch, I'm out front and got my top bag. Label me an author, full founder of lifestyle.